Today's scripture comes out of the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You may be seated. Well, good morning, West Bowles Community Church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. It's good to see you, whether you're joining us in person or tuning in online. Um, it is an honor to be here with you all. My name is David Perez. I'm the youth director here at the church. And uh, if you joined us last week, I was here last week, and I'm here this week. So two weeks in a row, you're stuck with me, okay? Well, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to hop right into it, because we have a lot to cover this morning, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for um, just the opportunity to gather as a church family, Lord. Um, and thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you open hearts. Uh, Lord God, I pray that you just uh, speak through your scripture. Lord, I pray that you speak through me, um, that none of this may be my words, but that it may all be you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, there are certain things that you can only learn from experience. Uh, So an example of that would be like driving a car, right? You can take driver's ed. Many of you do. Many of us have taken driver's ed. Uh, You can watch all the videos on how to drive defensively, but ultimately you can't say you know how to drive a car unless you've driven a car, right? Uh, Same thing is true of riding a bike, okay? You can can watch your neighbors ride a bike. You can have someone explain to you the mechanics of how bicycles work, but unless you ride the bike, you don't know how to ride a bike. Okay, then there's other things that we can learn from secondhand experience. Uh, So that's watching someone else do it. And oftentimes that comes in the form of failure. Okay, we learn a lot from other people's mistakes and failures. So we watch, we see someone do something or say something, and we go, ooh, I'm not going to do that. Okay, one of my favorite examples of this uh, is by a comedian by the name of Brian Regan. Okay, some of you are too young to know who he is. Some of you know who he is. Okay, and he he does this bit about... um, about asking if a woman is pregnant. So rather than me tell you about it, let's go ahead and take a listen to Brian Regan. I don't stop to think. I just, you know, just, oh no, words are coming out. Oh no. I'm not thinking what is it. 
Like I met this woman recently. I could have sworn she was pregnant. Let me tell you. I know now. I think the rule is uh, don't guess at that ever, 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 ever. Something like that. I didn't have enough ever's memorized, you know. So I said, hey, what's that baby doing? You feel a word coming up, but it's too late to stop it. It's, com it's coming out and loud. Hey, what's that baby do? Baby! What baby? At the zoo, the, the pandas. I knew they were trying to have one. I just, you know, thought we'd talk about them. Talk about the fluffy zoo animals that day. I hear they got them over there. You can, you can go look at them and, if you want and touch them. Oh, my gosh. It is just cringy to hear that, isn't it? Yeah, has anyone ever made that mistake in here? Yes? Yeah, a few times, okay. Uh, now, I heard that clip in eighth grade, okay? And I remember hearing that clip. Now, and if you know me, you know I tend to put my foot in my mouth. Okay, it happens. In fact, I'm a little nervous at some point this morning. I'm probably very likely to put my foot in my mouth, okay? Um, but I remember hearing that in eighth grade and just going, oh my gosh. Like, how could he do that? Okay, I, I heard his failure and I said, I'm never, ever, ever going to ask that question. And by God's grace, I never have, okay? And so I, I learned from his failure. I remember hearing that and going, okay, I, I'm going to learn from that. And so this morning, that's what we're going to aim to do. We're going to look at someone else's failure. Specifically, we're going to look at a few people who, even though Jesus is right in front of them, they miss him entirely. And so we're going to look at how they missed them, how they messed up, in the hopes that we don't have to. So that maybe we can learn from their mistake and not repeat it. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Mark chapter 3 says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now we're going to stop right there. So we see Jesus' family. Okay, Jesus has been practicing ministry for a little bit. They've, they've heard of other things he's done. They've, in fact, witnessed some of the things he's done. Yet, for some reason, we get to this point in the scripture, and his family goes, okay, he's, he's lost his mind. He's, he's off his rocker. They looked at what he was doing and, and went, Jesus, that's crazy. And you know what? You're crazy. And I love the, the language that scripture uses here. It says, um, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. In other words, they weren't just going to peacefully come up and be like, hey, Jesus, could you just stop? Like, just, just quiet down a little bit. Or maybe could you just not do that again? No, what we read is, is they came to literally remove him, forcefully take him from what he was doing and basically say, you're done. No mas, no more. Because what he was doing, something for some reason they went, that's, that's enough. And as I began to read, as I read that, that passage, I went, okay, why now? Why all of a sudden? Again, they've seen what Jesus has been doing. They know about it. But for some reason, this was a straw that broke the camel's back. And so I began to wonder, well, well, maybe it's because as they looked at Jesus, as they saw him, they said, okay, you know what? 
this isn't quite what we pictured your ministry would look like. Maybe they went, this, is, this isn't quite what we pictured the Messiah would be doing. Maybe this isn't quite what we pictured you would be saying. Now maybe they went, Jesus, you're kind of bringing some embarrassment to the family. Maybe you shouldn't be saying this. Maybe it's best if you stopped. But what we read is that, and we know that Jesus did nothing outside of the Father's will. He only did what the Father told him to do, nothing more, nothing less. He was perfectly in line with what the Father did. And so what they ended up doing is they misjudged his ministry. They entirely misjudged his ministry. In their mind, they went, this is not what I pictured. This is not what I think you should be doing. You've gone crazy. And for us, we can fall into the exact same thing if we're not careful. We can misjudge the ministry that God is carrying out today, here and now, in this body, in the bodies around us, and and in the church as a whole. What ends up happening when we do that is we, we see what's going on and, and when, when what we picture God's work needs to look like doesn't match up with what God is doing, it gets very easy for us to go, well, then that's not God. When the work that God is doing does not match my preference or my picture of what I think it should be, it gets easy for us to misjudge that. It gets easy for us to go, ooh, I don't know that I agree with that. And unfortunately, it'll happen when, when, we're, when we encounter places and churches and ministries that are perfectly in line with God's word. That are earnestly seeking him out. That are, that are doing a ministry within God's will. But unfortunately, if it doesn't fit our picture, if it doesn't fit our preference, we're very likely to go, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be around that. You know what? I don't know that that's God doing that. And we see examples all throughout history. I mean, one of the easiest examples in the church is music. I mean, think about it. Within the church as a whole, big church, capital C church, there are some of us who go, you know what, worship music? Worship music really, it it needs to, I need to feel it. It needs to be loud. Right? It's got to have a guitar and someone's got to be up there singing. And I've got to hear those drums. And I've really got to experience that. I've got to feel that deep in here. And if I don't, if it's anything outside of that, then, then I don't know that we can call it true worship. So we look at anything else and we go, ah, that doesn't fit my picture of what it should be. So God must not be in it. And we've got people on the other side. Right? We've got those of us on the other side who go, that's actually just noise. Okay, not even a joyful noise to the Lord. It's just noise. And if it's not a, if it's not a thought through him, if it's not sung by a choir, if there's not a pipe organ, then I don't know that we can call it worship. And so I don't want to be a part of that. I don't know that God's in that. Yet, there's room for both. There's room for both. But because it doesn't fit our picture or our preference, we misjudge it. We go, mm-mm, I don't want any part of that. And it's split churches. 
I mean, just look at all the denominations we have within the Christian faith. All of those denominations believe there is one triune God, believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, united in one being, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he is coming back, that the Holy Spirit is with us. They believe all the cores of the faith. But what has happened oftentimes with some of these denominations is they've gone, well, I, I, I don't agree with you on something minor. That's not my preference. That's not how I pictured it. So you know what? I'm going to go do something different. God's not at work in that. I, I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. There, are, there have been times in history where there have been church splits and, and divisions because someone has been doing something outside of Scripture. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about when it's about preference, when it's about what I think is best, what I think is right, what I think it should look like, what I pictured it as. We can misjudge it. So that's the first way that we can miss Jesus is by putting our preference above what's happening, above what he's doing. And so how do we keep from doing that? How do we keep from doing that? We have to remember this right here, that God's work doesn't always fit my picture. God's work does not always fit my picture, does not always fit my preference, does not always fit what I think is best. Then he continues. Verse 22 says this, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now we're going to get to those last two verses here in just a minute. But before we do, I want us to, to look at a few things. Okay, First of all, we, we see here that the teachers of the law, they came down from Jerusalem. So, so this wasn't, they just happened to run across Jesus. No, 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 this was planned. They knew he was going to be in the area. And so what we read and what we see is very likely that a group of the Pharisees and Sadducees sent, sent some people to confront Jesus. To confront him. And as uh, one commentator that I really, really like um, said this, to, to pass a judicial verdict to, to put a charge against him and say, Jesus, you, you are working and what you are doing is of the devil. When we read that word billsable, the original readers of Mark would have understand, understood that to be of the power of Satan. You're, you're doing things out of Satan's power. And so here they are, they very intentionally came down, confronted Jesus, accused him of working from the devil, and that his power is of the devil. 
And then we get Jesus' response. And how does he respond? Well, he tells them in that parable. He says, first of all, what you're accusing me of doesn't even make sense, right? He's saying, how can Satan out of his own power cast out Satan? Why, why would Satan, a house divide, why would he divide his house? Why would he be wanting to cast out demons? He would, he would be bringing his own kingdom to an end. And so he tells them that that doesn't even make sense. And then he continues. He tells them, right? In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. In other words, he's, he's saying, yeah, Satan's a strong man, but someone's got to tie him up. Someone's got to bind him. And what he's, what he's telling them in this parable is that that's me. That I, I am the one binding up Satan. It is not by his power. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I am binding him up. Satan's, the, the beginning of the end of Satan's kingdom is here, but not because of Satan. It is here because of me. I am the one taking charge. I am the one that has bound him. I am the one who is bringing the end to his kingdom. And so Jesus refutes their claim. Basically tells them how it doesn't hold water. And then he gets to those next two verses. He says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Now, I want to stop there because that verse gets lost in light of the next one. We, we miss what Jesus is saying here because a verse later we'll read about an unforgivable sin. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying every sin, every wrong, everything is forgiven. All of it. Everything you could do. Forgiven. I like how other translations also say, um, instead of slander, they use blasphemy. Every blasphemy. And so if Jesus says that, if he says everything's forgiven, well then how can in the very next line, how can just right after immediately, how can he say, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So how can you say everything's forgiven and then say, but there's something that's unforgivable? Jesus, shouldn't you have said um, most sins, almost all sins except for this one? How can Jesus say everything's forgivable and then say that there's something unforgivable? Brad, I'm glad you asked. You asked last week, and I'm glad you asked again this week. Thank you, Brad. I'm going to be transparent with you today, church. Um, this is a tough, this is a tough passage of scripture, isn't it? This is hard. And we could honestly, we could spend the next 40 minutes talking about just this one little chunk of scripture. We could spend a long time on this, but we're not going to. We're not going to spend 40 minutes on this. And also, um, I don't know everything, okay? Shocker, right? I know, I know. 
My wife knows that, but I know, okay? The older I get, the more I realize that my knowledge is about this, this big. Compared to what I don't know, it's about here. And so before, before this week, before I began to study this passage, I did not know much about what Jesus was saying here. And so rather than just give you my two cents and what I think, I'm going to do what they taught us in school. They said, hey, anytime you don't know what's being said, well, then refer to someone smarter than you. Right? You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to know who is. And so what I, what I did is, is I went through and, and I, I read some books from some guys who have Ph.D. and about seven other letters behind their name, okay, who are much more studied in this, who, who their life work has been studying this book. And I listen to some sermons of, of some preachers who have a lot more experience than I do, who have been preaching for a lot longer, who have been handling the, the preaching of God's word more than I have. And, and I sought some wise counsel of someone who is much wiser than I am, who has decades of ministry experience more than I do. And so rather than give you my two cents, what I would like to do is share with you their words, what they've said when it comes to this, this passage and what I've learned, so that we can see what does Jesus mean? Why is he saying this? Why does he say all sins forgivable thing goes with an unforgivable sin? Is that all right with you guys this morning? Can, can I do that? Thank you. So, uh, the first quote I want to read to you um, is from this guy named Robert Stein, and he's the author of the, the Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament, the book of Mark. He says this, This is a deliberate refusal on their part, to acknowledge the activity of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry. In the present context, it refers to attributing Jesus' exorcisms to the work of Satan. But what is it about that, what is it about this that caused it to be an unpardonable sin? In other words, he's saying, you know, these teachers of the law, right, they're not acknowledging the Spirit's work in Jesus' ministry. They're saying it's of Satan, but he's saying, what caused those words to be an unforgivable sin? What about that claim they made against Jesus makes it unforgivable? He says, perhaps it is because the act of blaspheming the work of the Spirit is to resist his work in the human heart. And without the Spirit's work, repentance and faith are impossible. Only through the work of the Spirit is saving faith possible. Thus, to blaspheme the Spirit's work, which seeks to lead a person to faith, is unforgivable in that it makes faith impossible. In other words, he's saying they are actively going against the Holy Spirit. They are fighting the one who is able to do any work inside the human heart. It's it's, it's through the Spirit that we're able to go, I need a Savior. It's through the Spirit that goes, I need, I need repentance. It's through the Spirit that we're able to acknowledge that we are flawed and sinful. It is only through the Spirit that we're able to draw near to God. And so what he's saying is they are denying the Spirit's work and his ability to do that. In other words, it's, it's not just about their words, but it's a reflection of their heart. I mean, can we, just, can we think about this for a quick second? Who's in front of them? The living God is right there in their presence. God himself, in the flesh, is right before them, in front of them. Fully God, fully human, united in one being. Jesus Christ, 
who is doing the Father's will through the work of the Spirit. That is who is face to face with them. And the people, the ones who should have seen him coming before anyone else, right? The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that group of people, if anyone should have been able to identify when the Messiah was here, it should have been them. They should have known. Yet, when God himself is right there, when they are confronted with him, what do they do? They deliberately attack him. They oppose him. They actively go against him. They attribute the work that the Holy Spirit is doing to the work of the devil. And you see, what we find out is this, is it's, we see the condition of their heart. When confronted with God himself, their words reveal to us what's going on in here. And so what we see is exactly that, is they hardened their hearts. Their hearts were so hardened that even God himself right in front of them, they couldn't see him. They couldn't acknowledge him. And not only that, but they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Now, it's not just one act. I want to keep reading, reading to you what what some of their commentators said. This is another guy by the name of David Garland. He said, We could therefore define the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as a defiant, willful, and final rejection of the Spirit's work in a person's life. It is not a single action, but a continual state of spurning the Spirit's work, deliberately scorning the power and forgiveness of God. In other words, what he's saying is this just wasn't, wasn't just a one-time thing. Over time, as it went on, right, these guys hardened their hearts towards the Lord. It was a constant, continual spurning going against God and his spirit and what he is doing. A continual active resistance to him. As that wise friend I told you all about said, I I think he put it best. He says, when you can attribute the work of God to Satan, they are so far out and gone that they can't get to the place where they can say, I am wrong. They can't get to the point where they can ask for forgiveness or repentance. In other words, what this hardening of the heart has done is it's gone, I'm filled with so much pride. My heart is so hardened against God that I cannot get to the place where I can look and admit that I'm wrong. That I cannot get to the place where even when confronted with God, where I can say I'm in need of forgiveness or I'm going to repent. And so what we discover is this, is that if there is no need for forgiveness and if there's no desire for repentance, then there can be no forgiveness of any sin. So it's not that there's this, this kind of, oh, you're going to commit the one unforgivable sin. No, no it, is, it is this continual work. It is the continual hardening of the heart to get to the point where you're going, I don't need forgiveness and I don't need repentance. I'm above that. I'm perfect. I'm better than that. And that's exactly what's going on here. Their hearts were that hardened. They could not and would not get to the place where they would ask 
to repent, where they would ask for forgiveness, where they felt that they needed it. Timothy Keller, in, in a sermon he gave on, on this exact subject, he was actually talking out of the book of Matthew, um, and there's a parallel to this in the book of Matthew, um, but he reminds us of exactly that. That without the ability to ask for forgiveness or seek repentance, there's forgiveness for no sin. And so that's what makes it unforgivable. It's again, it's that we do not want forgiveness or repentance of any sin. So how can you forgive anything? Now, if you're like me, I remember the first time I read this passage, the first time I heard someone talk about this, and as a kid, the first thing that entered my mind was, oh my gosh, have I done that? We read this passage and we worry and we go, oh my goodness gracious, have I committed that the unforgivable sin? Has my heart gotten there? Well, there's good news. I want to read something that Timothy Keller says. If you're afraid that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. You're not capable of that kind of worry. Only the Holy Spirit can produce it. In other words, what we find out is that when you have that worry, when you go, oh my gosh, have I done that? Well, what that communicates is that you are worried about this relationship being lost. You are worried about your connection to your father being gone. There is a conviction there. And there is no conviction without the Holy Spirit. He's the one that convicts. He's the one that brings us close to him. And so if we're worried about it, well, that shows the Holy Spirit's active work in our life. Not only that, but if there is conviction, if if you do something wrong and you're like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that? If there is this active desire to want to grow in your faith, to know the Lord, then that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And you cannot, you cannot accidentally do this. This This is not something that you can go, oh my gosh, I just did it. Okay? It's not accidental. It's very purposeful and deliberate. The hardening of the heart to that extent where we think and go to the point where we are no longer in need of a Savior is hard work. You've got to actively work to get there. And so, what does that mean for us? How do we, well, how do we learn from this? Well, one, like I said, this is not something you can accidentally do. Right? If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. The second caution I have for us is this. We need to be very careful to not point that out in someone else. We need to be very careful that we do not become the judges of someone else's heart. That we don't go, oh man, I can't, I can't believe they did that. I would never. How could they? We need to be very cautious that we don't get to the point where we start going, I, I think they might have committed it. I think their hearts might be hardened. Because you and I cannot judge the heart. That is God's job. That's his responsibility. He is judge. And if we can get to the point where we are able to go, mm, you've done it. We're on the path to hardening our hearts. We're, we're, we're on the way to going, I'm above everyone. I'm better than everyone, and I don't know that I need to repent or ask for forgiveness anymore. 
So how do, what does this mean for you and I? What does this mean for you and I? How do we not, how do we not commit the same thing? How do, we, how do we learn from this mistake? Well, it's this. I have to remember that I have to remain open to the Holy Spirit's constant work inside of me. I have to remain open to the constant. And notice that that word constant is bolded and underlined. His constant work inside of me. Because guys, we need constant work. There's not a morning where I don't wake up and go, oh my gosh, God, you have so much work to do. There's not a day that goes by where I go, I, I, I am, where I don't go, I am in need of a Savior, right? We realize God has constant work to do in, his heart, in our hearts. We are always in need of a Savior. We are daily in need of, of His forgiveness. We are daily in need of Repentance. And so his constant work, we've got to remain open to that. And it's a work that's not done until we get to the other side of eternity. It's a work that's going to go on for the rest of your life. Let's move on to the next one. The next way that they missed Jesus was that they misconstrued his words. They misconstrued his words. Let's read here. Verse 31 says this Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. And mother. When we read that, it can get very easy for us to go, wait, is Jesus saying I've got to get rid of my family? Now, for some of you in here, you're going, Amen. Okay? That's not what he's saying, though. No, no, no. He's expanding the meaning of family. He's saying, Look, your family now consists of every believer, your family now consists of everyone who proclaims my name, who does my will, who does the will of the Father. That is now your family. And so here's what we're going to do. Very quickly, okay, we're going to do this for one minute. I want us to meet our family. Because everyone in here, right, believers, this is your family. And so I know we already did standing, but what I want you to do, we're going to take one minute. I want you to find someone behind you, in front of you, next to you, who you don't talk to very often, who maybe you don't know that well. And you're going to just do two things. Ask them their name. And ask them how you can pray for them. All right? If you feel inclined, you can get their phone number and you can, you can reach out and see how they're doing this week. If you're online, I want you to do that with the person next to you. And if you're watching alone, well, that's okay. What I want you to do is just jot down the name of a few people who you want to reach out to this week. And then I want to challenge you to reach out to them and ask them the same questions. Ask them how you can pray for them. So does everyone understand what we're doing? All right, when I say go, we're going to go. Ready? On your marks, get set, Go. All right, take about 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Five seconds. One more second, Dana. One more? One more second. Okay, I'll give you one more second. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. I know I'm cutting you short, but hey, 
If I'm cutting you short, I'd ask you to go ahead and sit back down. If I'm cutting you short, I would challenge you to find whoever you wanted to finish this conversation with. Find them after church and continue this conversation. Keep talking with them. Um, reach out to them. So here's, here's what this means. And, and, and here's when, when Jesus is saying that here's the takeaway for us is this, is that uh, being family as believers is thicker than blood because of his blood. Being family as believers is thicker than blood because of his blood. In other words, this bond as believers is is the greatest, deepest bond we can have. It is is greater than any division we might come up against than any preference. And it is deeper than anything that brings us together. This is at the core, the deepest thing. I mean, have you ever run into someone at a supermarket, you're talking to them, and all of a sudden you find out they're a believer? What instantly happens? You're like, oh my gosh, you feel like you know them at a whole nother level, even though you've been talking for 10 seconds. That's a deep bond. So, the people in Jesus' day in this story, they missed Jesus. They missed him big time. So how do we not miss him? Well, it's right back here. It's right here. God's work doesn't always fit my picture. I have to remain open to the Holy Spirit's constant, and remember, constant, daily work inside of me. We've got to remember that being a family as believers is thicker than blood because of his blood. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. I'm going to pray, and we'll get you guys out of here. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day and this time. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather as a church family. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you draw us near that you want a, a relationship with us. And so, Lord God, I pray that, that we draw near to you. I pray that we not miss you in the same ways that the people back then missed you, Lord God. I pray that we stay open to your daily work in our lives, that you continually draw us near to you and bring us back together as community. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.